one of the things I'm aware of, for some in hindsight, is my response to that was what's usually called staying closeted. What that really meant was I was repressing any sense of physical attraction to, uh, in my case, other males, um, but at the same time trying to date heterosexually without having any of the underlying um, desire attraction. So was this a camouflage? Were you, exp- were you trying to fit in? I was, you- yeah, I was trying to fit in, and uh, not surprisingly, um, the dating that I did in high school, the dating that I did in college, um, right into graduate school, was essentially heterosexual but asexual. Mm. And so um, I was living probably the most celibate form of dating you could possibly have, have lived. So I lost out on a whole range of opportunities then to really um, develop the sense of intimacy that comes uh, through, through sexuality. And that included not so much just the, the physical sexuality, but the whole emotional matrix in which that should reside. It's impossible to be loving someone and trying to express that love through sexuality if you've repressed your emotional capacity for doing that. So those, that was part of the formation, the transformation of Joe Marchesani. Yes. And you survived those times. Um, I did, but I have to say that um, by the time I hit middle age, um, it had become a source of despair for me. Um, I despair. Rec- yeah. I recognize that my hopes of having that kind of intimate relationship, even after I came out and started dating men instead of women, but every one of those relationships was doomed because I had never built up that capacity for emotional intimacy mm. as a entryway into that. I couldn't be vulnerable. I couldn't really... That's an interesting term, capacity for emotional intimacy. We often talk about emotional sobriety in the 12-step world. Emotional intimacy, say more about that. Okay. Um, Emotional intimacy means that I'm willing to be vulnerable about how I'm feeling. And um, in doing that, I'm asking basically that the person that I'm um, talking to or sharing space with, um, will also have a capacity for that emotional vulnerability that will help them to understand where I am. And it will also help them to accept and attend, uh, actively to what I'm saying. So emotional intimacy, you're also talking about being honest with yourself mm-hmm. and dealing with that and dealing with that inner critic and that dialogue in your head all right. at the same time. Right. Wow. Sounds daunting. It is. It is. And that was the experience with uh, my sexuality, um, I would have to say, was traumatic. Um, It was followed up by um, my experience of being drafted and sent to Vietnam, which was, in its own way, morally traumatic. So I came into full adulthood with a whole set of experiences that had shut me down emotionally, had shut me down morally, and made it very, very difficult then. Did you have any assistance during this time? Did you have any allies? Did you have any like-minded individuals? Um, I had friends. 
I regarded them as close friends. I was willing to listen to them, but I was not willing to share myself. Mm. And that's not a formula for sustainable intimacy. So this is this is not only dealing with the forms of sexuality, Joe. Right. This is dealing with all types of uh, inferiority complexes. This is talking right. about anxiety. This is talking about depression. Even right. people who may be experiencing some psych psychotic symptoms, some psychosis that mm -hmm. they're afraid to actually share with other people because they feel right. it's different from other folks. Mm -hmm. How uh, Today, today, looking back in yeah. hindsight, how would you have helped yourself back then? Well, um, I think had I been able to help myself then, um, I probably wouldn't be here now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, as I said, I would listen to others and in some ways that definitely helped me to develop a capacity for empathy the problem was I couldn't apply it to myself mm. and it was only um, when I actually came into recovery that I began to learn about self-compassion and practices self-compassion so to develop that quite often we talk about people we introduce the concept that flowers don't compare themselves to other flowers in a garden they bloom right. and which was when we introduced the holistic lifestyle we introduced the the concept of self-love and then it's not arrogant or conceit right. it's it's very important for you to self-grow right. and i often talk about uh, the bible's jesus when i asked him what the two greatest commandments were mm -hmm. love the lord your god with your whole heart your whole soul and your whole mind and love your neighbor as yourself right. to my to me to me I know you can, anybody can dispute my interpretation of this, feel free. <laughs> However, what I'm hearing the Bible's Jesus saying is, you can only love someone else in direct proportion to how much you love yourself. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that is at the core of what I would now call my spiritual awakening. Um, that particular uh, passage in the, in the Gospels where Jesus talks about... Um, loving God above all and loving your neighbor as yourself, he's challenged. Who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And then he just asks, and which of these figures, not the uh, two religious people that he mentions mm -hmm. who just kind of pass by mm -hmm. and, and push that away because it violates their ritual practices, uh, but this outsider who is not uh, particularly welcome uh, among the, the Jewish people, uh, is the one who shows true compassion and goes out of his way to help the, uh, the injured individual. Um, when we find a way to um, recognize that kind of compassion, uh, to be able to apply that to ourselves, it's like you have to be your own good Samaritan in some sense. Be your own good Samaritan. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so um, for me, the process of doing that, I think, um, involved, first of all, recognizing that I did have a capacity for compassion for other people, and I needed to learn how to apply that mm. to myself. Um, it's a challenge because that came after years of a very powerful, critical inner voice. Um, this voice of compassion had the same kind of feeling for me 
that I identify as spiritual awareness. So this program is much like a 12-step recovery room <laughs> where yes. it's, it's not so much as talking about the problem. It's talking about the solution. Yes. It's saying, yes, I acknowledge this happened. However, here's what I did about it. Right. And your story's fascinating, but I'm going to have to blur your ego a little bit. This, this right. show is not about you. I understand it, it, that. It's about, it's about how you've traveled through your life right. and how others can incorporate the same things. Choose what works for them. Right. We have a strong desire to help people. So much of the change has been um, attending I mean, I, I would say it's a combination of mindfulness, uh, definitely, uh, being aware of where I am at the present moment, um, and being aware of the choices that are available to me in that moment, not relying on habits that I've developed previously that were really consequences of that negative uh, sense of self. Um, one can't change. I can't change. Nobody else can change unless... They find something that they can substitute for those habits, and that uh, includes this ability to develop self-compassion. So you're talking about no one can do this by themselves. Right. Okay. So just as people out there are probably aware of my own journey, uh, but I'd like to hear about your entry into recovery and how it affected your life. Okay. Uh, short answer is it affected my life totally. Um, I entered into this uh, journey when I was in a the first really long-term relationship that I had had, and it became uh, evident to me that the quality of that relationship was deteriorating, um, that instead of being emotionally uh, and mutually enriching, uh, just the opposite was happening, that uh, I was withdrawing emotionally, uh, shutting down, which is typically what had happened to me when I had tried to established relationships previously, and the same thing was happening with uh, my partner. And then we hit a crisis, um, and my partner came to me, and he was in trouble, basically, and um, I said to myself, if we're going to save this relationship, he has to change. <laughs> okay. And... Um, he went into therapy, he went into recovery himself. And over a three-year period of my own yoga practice, but also listening to him talk about his recovery meetings and his therapy, it became increasingly clear to me what my responsibilities had been with my um, addictive habits that had developed. And at that point, I recognized not that we were going to salvage this relationship, we were going to create this relationship. Ah, I like that. I like that word. Okay. And um, I was able to characterize the core of my addiction, which was this um, aversion to intimacy, uh, and discover, um, again, through the, the guidance of the 12 steps, and they're leading me into a different interpretation, a much better interpretation, um, certainly more nurturing interpretation of my higher power, that I could then begin to build a foundation for the intimacy that that relationship required. So the whole idea is you had to do some introspection yourself. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a common misconception that 
12-step recovery is about stopping using drugs, stopping using alcohol, stopping codependency, stopping overeating, gambling, those type of things. When the first step is the only one that ever, that ever mentions the addiction. Right. And the other one, the other steps, uh, the first three steps are commitment steps, steps four through nine are action steps, and then there's the maintenance steps. Right. But there, it's, it's a design for living. Right. It's, it's not putting something through a washing machine. Right. And I, I run into this all the time. Um, I sponsor a lot of people in my recovery groups, and it's always a challenge. I say to them, look, step one is about what you're unable to do for yourself because that's all based on your addiction. So the rest of the steps are what you can do instead. And you're really creating yourself, you're creating a new sense of yourself, a much truer sense of who you are and what you're able to that's do. That's exciting. That's yes. a, it's, 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 we can look at it one, we can look at it as a chore or we can look at it as, as an epic journey. Right. I mean, it's a sense of opportunity. And um, I say, you know, this uh, completely compassionate and unconditionally compassionate being um, is always there. But every day, every moment is an opportunity for you to step back and pay attention to that presence. And when you can pay attention to that presence, you can bring that into every moment of your life. So we're talking about the eternal, we're talking about the divine, we're talking about whatever type of name you want to give it, right. the, the um so hum, I am that, oh, we're right. all connected. Talk to us about the connectivity, Joe. Okay. Um, you know, my sense is that this uh, sense of spirit, whatever it may be, um, is and has been present in everything that we think of as creation, um, however you want to in interpret that, it's there. It's right at the center of how creation unfolds. And as we have some sense now, creation has been unfolding for billions of years. And it just happens that, you know, we're one of the later developments in that. Um, and so it means that that potential for being unconditionally loved is not only available to us, it's within us. And it means that we can also love unconditionally. We have to love ourselves unconditionally, regardless of whatever our shortcomings may be. And when I feel that, I'm then able to project that onto uh, what Quakers would call that of God in everyone and see them through that rather than through my narrower perspective of inadequacy. So what we're trying to do is find some roadmaps and uh, perhaps some directional advice and the actual how-to, not just right. make lemonade. Right. Uh, the idea out there is that the basic concepts of loneliness, isolation, fear, I don't fit in, I'm not like other people, mm -hmm. uh, we get so alone and so fearful that the introduction into the 12-step world where it's often said that it's our singleness of purpose that bind us together. And we make no apologies stating that there has to be some type of a spiritual connection, some type of a spiritual foundation. Yeah. And the deal is, how does a person develop that? There's, there's, it's, it's a spiritual journey. It's not, it's not an event. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am, uh, fond of saying to my sponsees, if you're waiting for the burning bush, you're on the wrong path. <laughs> um, 
you know, in so many of the uh, 12-step fellowships, um, there is a sense that a first approximation of a higher power is to listen to the other people in the meetings. Mm -hmm. And whatever they may have to say, some of it may resonate with you, some of it may not. But when it resonates, then you're finding a way to understand what your higher power wants for you. So there's a line that says, as soon as a person has the willingness to believe mm -hmm. that there may be a power greater than themselves, they're on their way. And the key word there, Joe, is willingness. Right. So many of us are willful. We mm -hmm. come in willful. Mm -hmm. So how did you develop that willingness? Um, well, there is always a sense of desperation when it comes into a recovery program. Um, I happen to be able to ease into it uh, in a way that um, probably alleviated some of that desperation. But I, I remember feeling when I recognized uh, kind of the oh my God moment, I need to be in this recovery program. It felt like I had fallen off a cliff. So you're talking about a moment of clarity. Right. And um, following that in relatively short order for me was a sense, but my partner has fallen off that cliff and he's better than he was. And so something happened after he fell off that cliff. He let go of his old self, basically. Let go. And let go. began to develop that sense of the person he really is. So there's, there's a paradox in 12-step in recovery. It mm -hmm. says you have to surrender to win. That's right. So we have to understand and try to develop that beginner's mind and say, well, how were things working before? Right. What, whatever you were doing, how was it working in right. your life? You have to actually confront people about that right. or confront yourself. Right. And I certainly had to confront myself before I could confront other people. So if we, if we <laughs> could just give people the, the gift of desperation. Yes. The gift of desperation. Yes. Look at it as a gift. Right. The challenge there is that um, I became, and I'm sure lots of other people coming into recovery became, masters of denial, which is a way of screening yourself from the desperation and the honesty that's required before you can even get to the willingness, um, I think, uh, is a key there. So could you share with people what your life's like today, Joe? Uh, today, um, I'm actually happily married <laughs> uh, to this person. It's a completely reconstructed relationship. Um, we, I think partly because we are both in recovery, we have a profound understanding of each other's shortcomings and a really unconditional acceptance of each other as we are, um, as we work hand in hand to um, turn this program into our lives going forward. Um, these are things that we talk about pretty regularly. Um, we both became members of a Quaker meeting because we felt um, the spiritual presentation of that particular faith community matched very well our sense of um, what we needed for our recovery. And uh, we had our, our marriage ceremony in a, in a Quaker meeting. And our marriage vows basically said, um, I promise that I will nurture in you uh, that of God in the same way that I will nurture it in myself. Are you happy today, Joe? Absolutely. I've you, never been happy. Do you have some joy in your life? A lot. 
So at some point in your life, you learn to differentiate between pleasure and joy. Yes, for sure. Well, we're so glad you were able to join us this evening, Joe. And I know we could talk the rest of the evening on this particular topic. Uh, however, I think you've really touched on some really poignant points that I hope some people out there can understand. And our closing message to everyone out there, that if you're facing the four horsemen, the four horsemen of addiction, and remember, everybody's in recovery from something, and those four horsemen are terror bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Please understand that you don't have to face them by yourself. We urge everyone out there to seek help. Seek help of a friend. Attend a 12-step meeting. Attend some therapy. Attend, if, if, there's a, if there's a particular spiritual religious type of leader that you would prefer to talk to, to contact a trusted friend. We ask that you please, if we challenge you, to take care of yourself and do that for yourself. And as always, we give a free prescription at the end of every podcast, fruits, nuts, and vegetables, unplug your television and take up fishing. And for a truly mindful experience, we suggest that you fish without bait. Do a kindness for yourself, do a kindness for another. Forgive yourself, forgive another. Till all are free, none are free. Namaste. Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in flying the colors of Fishing Without Bait, click the shop icon on our website. We have clothing, mugs, cell phone cases, and so much more. Show the world that you fish without bait. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.